You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week, we have another massive industry leader in the room today. It is Michael McGowan, not Mark McGowan, Michael McGowan, Executive Director of the HIA. We had Aaron Sice, Assistant Director, in a few weeks ago to give us some more on-the-ground practical understandings of the medium density code, of where things are going in the market, and his experience over the last 15 years in the industry. But Michael's got some fantastic updates to give us in terms of where the world is in building the HIA's position on the medium density code delays, as well as some updates as to what's going to change for us in the future on the NCC 2022 updates that have been deferred for a couple of years. There's so much talk about Michael. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Trent. Thanks a lot for having us. Yeah, I just want to congratulate you on the show that you're producing at the moment. Really fantastic for our industry. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. And it's so great to have people like yourself and so many other leaders wanting to be a part of this conversation and keep pushing forward. Because I think at the core, as we were saying off air before, every single one of us from executive director down to laboring assistant, we're all passionate about property. We're all passionate about either transacting in, developing, creating houses, roofs over people's heads, aren't we? Absolutely. And I think that starts from a really young age for a lot of people, whether it's going as far back as Lego, right all the way through to someone getting their apprenticeship and and going through and creating what ends up being a a roof over someone's head. I think at the core, it's a really great industry and, and housing matters to everyone. So it's something that I'm really passionate about. They're good people. When you spend enough time on site, you recognize that a lot of these trades, not only within their own teams, but across teams and different trades, they know each other, they talk to each other, uh, they hang out. You know, someone's sitting there laying bricks, the other one's painting, and they're talking about their day and their life and what they want to achieve. Uh, they're real people, and bloody hell, it's been a tough few years for most of these trades, not to mention the builders, obviously, their books, most of them in the red, over the last few years, trying to keep their head above water, but trades, we'll talk about this later. We've got to really take our hat off to these people who have absolutely, I would expect most of them, be burnt out at this point in time. As we were talking about earlier, I think there's a fair portion of the industry that's been doing it really hard for the last three years and well documented the challenges that are out there but i think the pleasing thing is is that they get each other through it they show up every day they know it's challenging they know that there's going to be consumers who are are maybe frustrated with what's happening out there at the moment everyone's kind of a little bit tense a little bit stressed but it's really important that they continue to to do what they do not only for state development but also for as you know we've, we've got a real housing shortage out there so we need them to keep going and throw our arms around them at the same time. It's a huge conversation to have. Before that, I want to talk about Michael McGowan for a minute and lay a pathway for those people that look up to you and think, maybe I want to be the executive director of the HIA one day. Uh, it didn't start in the building industry for you, did it? Where did you start coming out of university? Yeah, I certainly didn't write it down when what I wanted to be to, to grow up was executive director of HIA. But it's a job you fall into, isn't it? It Absolutely, yeah, it is. And I'll touch on probably at the end just a, a couple of the key things that have followed through my career but I finished uni I love sports and I was destined I thought to be a phys ed teacher went through uni did human movement for three years probably got to the end of that that time and my dad who had been a teacher for 30 years at that point tapped me on the shoulder and said why don't you try a couple of other things before you you do this last year of your dip ed thankfully I guess I, I listened to him at that point bounced around a little bit without kind of knowing where I wanted to do I went to London for for two years to do the obligatory working holiday visa 
program. And, and when I got back, I landed in recruitment and HR and was lucky enough to have someone who kind of helped me get into that world. And then over the course of the next 10 to 12 years, worked at Bankwest and Rio Tinto, which were fantastic companies. It was helping people find jobs within both of those companies. Bankwest was going through a massive transition around customer experience. Rio Tinto at the time were looking at driverless trains in, in the Pilbara, helping salt of the earth train drivers who had been doing it for 30 years think about what was going to come next. So I had a fantastic time there. Probably got to the point where I just needed a new challenge and I'd been part of two really big companies and I got the opportunity to go to the Chamber of Commerce in Western Australia, CCIWA, and was a membership manager there and my job was purely to drive around and see 300 different businesses. Just from meet business owners. Meet business owners, ask them what their problems were, what was keeping them up at night and how we could potentially help them. Any um, of them in the housing industry? I don't think many of them were, actually. It was right from Woodside all the way down to deli owner in Cannington. So, again, that kind of theme of, of helping people and, and being a problem solver was something that, that really appealed to me. And I did four years at, at the Chamber and then probably made the decision that I really wanted to focus on an industry. The Chamber was great, but it was all things to all people. And I wanted to kind of make a difference in a particular industry and, and was lucky enough to come into HIA at a time where I was building a house at the same time and thought, I know there's everything to know about building in this space. And funnily enough, I don't. I think you're always learning, in, especially with construction. Even builders that are building things for me right now, they look at a set of architectural plans and go, I've never done this before. Yeah. And these are guys who got 40 years experience. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always changing, which is awesome. But yeah, over the last two or three years, worked really closely with Kath Hart, who was the previous executive director. And at the beginning of last year, when she moved on to go look after old houses at Rewa, um, <laughs> got the chance to step up and I uh, was successful in getting the position in June last year. And it's been an immense learning curve. I'm really grateful to a lot of the people who are in our industry that have given me the time to help get that experience and, and understand it fully. And in a position now where there's still significant challenges for the industry, but really excited by it. Look, you stepped into the role after Kath, I guess at the back end of COVID. You were obviously there right next to her as a right-hand man. So I expect when things were getting really tough and QR codes were coming in. Do you remember what life was like as an advocate at that point in time trying to give guidance to your industry and then feed that up and down from government in a time that was just uncharted waters for everyone? Yeah, it was 24-7. There were people within our membership and within our industry who were looking for guidance and trying to understand what was coming next. And we were literally building a bridge into the dark through kind of March, April, display homes closed. There was obviously talk about the building bonuses and, and that kind of thing. And then that took off. And then we dealt with the challenges around, well, they wanted all these jobs to start within six months. And a lot of the builders were changing their methodology and their processes. There was a huge amount of information going around it was much like at the moment everyone really cares about housing and has a, a theory on how to fix it and it's about how you distill that information down pass it through to people like the premier at the time to kind of make the right decisions for the time well, it's multifaceted right it's, there is not just one solution to fix this housing supply problem there are so many problems and therefore so many solutions there's probably more solutions than there are problems more ways of people looking at things from different angles different sides of the spectrum as we've seen very recently with the medium density code to solve these problems but i think culturally whether it's from a developer to builder 
developer to local government, state government, all these departments. I really think and hope there needs to be an improvement in the culture of working together like we were for a period there in COVID for all of us to pull together to solve this problem. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. And I think that perhaps with fresh eyes, the opportunity that I have is to, and probably the benefit of not having a huge amount of building experience is, is to be able to facilitate some of that discussion and, and try and bring everyone together to, to work out what that is. 2019, we weren't building enough houses. We didn't have enough work. We didn't have enough work. Now we don't have the people to do the work. Now we don't have the people to do the work. Well, let's talk about that, right? I remember writing an article in the West in July 2020, just after the grants had been announced. And the point of my article was to say that this is going to be an absolute sugar hit that is going to cause a diabetes in the industry. Not only do we not have the trades to do the work that this is going to create, we don't have the drafties, we don't have the contracts admin people. This is going to cause huge pain all the way through the industry. Three years later, we're still seeing it and we've got you know record number of builders uh, who have gone bust across the country and record number of tradies calling it quits going up to the mines. The largest drop-off of of apprentices come from the building industry. Obviously, there's a lot of financial, emotional, mental burnout here. The government has never and will never uh, admit to this being too much of a sugar hit and said, we just did the best we could at the time, which is a, which is a fact. But surely in hindsight, we look back and go, someone wasn't talking to someone or doing their numbers properly between the Liberal federal government and the Labor state government to announce both of these grants in the same week and not model whether this was too much in the first place. Hindsight is 2020 is always, I guess, the saying as it goes. But I remember at the time these discussions were going on, particularly at a state-based level, and, and probably as far as a pipeline goes, we thought we had probably the shortest pipeline in the country as far as, you know, that... that low base that we were coming off jobs. You would have been advocating for some sort of assistance back then before COVID anyway, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think if you go back to as far as 20, probably 17, we were kind of talking about some sort of sugar hit. You know what would have been the best? Social housing programs back in 2017 in the first place. One, when they were needed for the people that needed them, but two, the builders that actually needed the work in the first place. And we wouldn't now be in a position where John Kerry has to throw fuel to the fire, getting way less bang for his buck. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think how many and what that looked like back in those times was probably needed. And you could probably go back an extra 15 or 20 years and and apply a very similar theory. So talking to some of our national colleagues who did have larger pipelines, they probably didn't think the national stimulus would, would come quite so soon either. So if you could have predicted, and clearly you did, the challenges that were going to be there, borders being closed for two years, railways going down, international wars, freight, shipping... All of those things, I think... Well, they've just compounded it, haven't they? Yeah, that you would have probably had a different decision. But I think for the information that we had at the time, I stand by the fact that that we needed to do something. Well, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. But yeah, I look at it and think, surely going forward, a policy needs to be brought in from the Minister of Housing that in times where cyclically the building industry needs the work, that is topped up by social housing programs that not only get the best bang for your buck for the state to pay for this housing, but two, retains a pipeline of apprentices so they don't fall away in times just before we need them again. And then in times where the market gets hot again from just the general cyclical nature of the property market, not specifically the housing market, then we cool off the social housing because we already built enough for the years preceding that. Would that not make sense? Is it too simple to explain (laughs) it that way? I don't think it's too simple. I, I think what we really need to do is understand every lever that we have to pull in regards to housing and 
whether it's social housing, whether it's tinkering with the, the conditions around Keystart. What COVID has taught us is that there's general consensus now that 20,000 homes a year should be what we strive for. On average, on long-term average. average. One, we don't have the capacity for that in terms of hands on deck. And two, we haven't been doing that for a couple of years. And, and look at the approval numbers. Last December, I remember making this call on the podcast in, in January this year. In December, we had less approvals in December 2022 than we had in December 1983, back when the population was less than half. Yeah, interest rate rises and other bits and pieces that, that you could play in that space. But I think aspirationally, we should be aiming over the next two to three years to get towards 20,000 homes. And then how do we maintain one or 2,000 either side of that? And what do we need to tinker with to make sure that we keep it there? Surely it's got, got to be a continual visa program for skilled visas. And Luke Parker from OP Properties had this fantastic idea at a recent PCA conference that that visa ties them to the city or at least ties them to the industry if they're going to work regionally. So that they're not coming in, working for Dale Alcock this week and then off working for Gene Reinhart next week. I think the government has just announced a construction visa program, which is a, a thousand visas with incentives of up to $10,000 for a business to bring them in. Got some really great examples of people in, particularly in the roof plumbing space that are bringing in large numbers from the Philippines to be able to do that and, and with great success. So I think we do need to have a flow of people, whether you can tie them to an employer or not. I think there's some, some challenges in that space, but I think... At least in industry. I think bringing people into Western Australia is really important. Really mm. important well, it's moment. the only solution, right? And, and whether they end up in the mines or not in the mines, I, I think it takes the pressure off the global war or the state war or the national war for talent. We need to keep topping them up and understand that we have for a very, very long time been the breeding ground for trades and workers all around the state in, in different industries and and if we want to in, change in the that, housing industry yeah and yeah. if we want to change that we need to pay more if we want to pay more it affects the cost of housing to the consumer which which we know is a real challenge at the moment so it's one of the challenges that we have but it's really important that we keep topping and making it attractive and we do that by having a really steady stable industry and I think that's an advocacy thing that we, we need to keep seeing. Obviously, it's not just the state government. It's actually really the federal government they need to play a ball on that. Let's talk to costs if yep. we can. I remember building my first home with Home Buyers Centre in 2009. It was a four by two with a theatre, 200 and something square metre, single storey for 150 grand turnkey. That was just 14 years ago that I signed that contract. That house now would be around $350,000 with the same spec. I'm getting the same thing for it. Replacement cost has clearly gone through the roof over that 14-year period. It's way above inflation. And it's probably the biggest proponent for sales value increases in housing over and above land value increases. Actually, the replacement cost has gone up. It's the first time that I've seen in generations where you've got a house that was $150,000 that a valuer would be looking at depreciating over the next 40 years, which, you know, it should be worth $100,000 now or something like that, but it's actually probably as a replacement value, which adds up to the established market land plus home value of $350,000. How are we in a world where a house that should be depreciating on my tax report now worth three times what it cost? Good time to advertise that uh, it, you should be checking your insurance policy to make sure <laughs> that your replacement point. cost is to the value of what it's going to cost you to replace it. Uh, We're putting a lot more in these houses these days in terms of screen tech, in terms of ins insulation, all that, aren't we? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the cost of people to build their homes, whether that's labour costs or input costs for the products that go into them, I, I think all of those are factored in. I think also that it takes a lot longer now to build our houses and there's a lot more approvals that go into it and there's a lot more people involved. And I think... Is that a COVID-specific thing or do you think going forward you will never be able to build a single-storey house in nine months again? I think we'll get back to that space. I think, again, it's it's largely dictated to by demand, but also our ability to have enough work to do that it might be a while but I think hearing stories of 12 months for people that are, are probably have started in the last couple of months they've missed the hump haven't they absolutely yeah the the wombat and the python or whatever yes. you want to call it <laughs> and there's also got to be a realization out there that if you're starting now you are going to catch up to the wombat so you are going to go through pre-start really quickly slabs going to go down really quickly you're probably going to get to plate height reasonably quickly probably roof carpenter reasonably quickly and then you're going to hit everyone else and, and it'll probably slow down from there so roof plumbing finishing trades yeah so we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. I think there's a, a, a solid 12 to 18 months worth of work in that pipeline. But it's interesting because we need to keep filling the funnel. You know, we, we talk about building our workforce and building capacity. We can't have this huge volume of work that we've gone through over the course of the last 12, 18 months and then see it come down, which is what we're seeing at the moment, as you mentioned, with the number of approvals. We need to keep these people employed. Well, we don't even have the approvals to meet the targets. So yes, there's the demand for housing. But there's not the demand for construction because if you look at the FISO from mum and dad back of the envelope, this isn't a developer, just someone building their own home. They look at it and go, well, hang on a sec. I can buy the established house in Ellenbrook for 450. It's five years old, pretty good condition. Or I'm going to have to buy the land for 250 next door and then pay 350 to build the house. Why would I do that? That's 600 grand. I might not even get the valuation to stack up. Have you seen that issue there? There's a real gap between, in a lot of suburbs still, the established market house that's only five to 10 years old and what it would cost to bring on a, exactly the same house next door now. Yeah, I, I've talked a lot over the last 18 months about the confidence that comes from interest rates, cost and time. Um, and trust. And trust. There's no trust well, I think in the building industry yeah, at the moment. <laughs> we might get to that later. Interest rates, are, I feel like, have got to a point where I don't think they're, if there might be one or two more, but it's not going to see the volumes that we've seen over the last 12 months. I feel like costs, depending on what data you look at, they're back to 5 to 6%, notwithstanding the fact that we've seen probably close to 45% increased in costs over the course of the last three years. Time is probably that last missing piece. And if you can get those pieces right and and get a bit of confidence that people can build a home it'll cost what it'll cost the interest rates aren't going to go dramatically up but i can get in there with inside 12 months then i think demand comes back into the market i do think that demand is being held back and we've actually got a supply problem which is impacting demand not necessarily a demand problem which if you looked purely at approvals you could probably kind of that's say the exactly opposite. right you make a really good point here and it's where i was getting to it it's not that there's no one that doesn't want to build it's that anyone who wants to build either doesn't have the confidence to sign that contract that they're actually going to get it built in any reasonable time or that the builder will be a, around by the time it's done, which is a big fear of a lot of customers out there. But it's, it's also, there aren't that many builders out there. You look at BGC, our biggest builder in Western Australia, the doors are closed. That's going to have a huge structural impact on the throughput of West Australian property in the first place. You think about the biggest builder in Western Australia with the biggest public liability insurance limit, allowing them to build the most homes at the same time. You know, that limits builders, obviously, in the first place. 
they're probably never going to be able to get that limit again. We don't have the builders with the PI, with the people, with the trades, with the skilled white-collared people to actually get us to 20,000 in the first place. Who's the company X coming out next week who's going to bring in 5,000 homes a year? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And we touched on it earlier that builders are tired and they've been burned to some some degree. Financially, Financially you ruin yeah. a lot of them. And, and I don't think you will find a lot of them that are looking to grow over the next... You know, two they're consolidating, they're they? consolidating. They're yeah. getting really good at what they they're good at, and that is a it's a huge concern. I think we're building to capacity at the moment as well. So I think we're hearing about builders that are watching sales really closely and, and not taking on ones that they don't think they can deliver. They're really margins com- are high. Margins are high they're, to they're, make up for what they've lost, but also because they're they really conscious. Yeah, and they're really conscious of the customer experience as well. I, I think they are aware that. The industry has had some hits, it's kicked some own goals, and they're really wanting to provide a really good customer service. And we know what social media platforms and, and people rely on those reviews to choose who they're going to go and do their building with. So it's something that they're really conscious of at the moment. I know this is a tough question to ask you because it wouldn't be an easy question to answer. Do you think there's a possibility that there are any other notable builders in Western Australia that are on the edge at the moment and might not be here next year? Is that a possibility still or are we out of the woods I don't think you can ever say we're out of the woods. There is still a a portion of our industry that are working their way through the challenges that they've had over the course of the last three years. I don't think we'll see a Porter Davis type situation that happened in Victoria, but uh, I think I'd be naive to say that, that we won't see any more builders either finish the work that they've got on at the moment and decide not to keep going or fall into those situations where yeah, they just can't keep going and they, they the consumers are affected. Well, it's been a sad story for 100 builders in Western Australia so far. A lot of them caught at the wrong place at the wrong time, seeing an opportunity. Some would call it greed. Some would call it simply just taking the work that was given to, the, given to them and not having the ability to finish it. Well, we had a builder personally working across some of our projects and the reality there was that they, were, they got you know 15 developments to plate height had chewed through most of the contract and recognized that QBE will pay the last $200,000 per house out. So we'll get as far as we can with the cash flow place and leave it to QBE to pick up the pieces if we don't make it. That's a precarious position that also affects the one insurer that insures this, this whole industry. Well, it's the state government ultimately that, that provides that, that, underwrites that, that underwrites that insurance. I think we've got to be really careful in this discussion as well not to throw all builders in the same boat. There's definitely some builders that have taken that approach that you talked about, but I think it's really important that people understand that a builder can deal with increased costs if timeframes to construct are, are flowing. They can deal with long timeframes if there's no increases in build costs. To do both is incredibly difficult. Well, it's been it's not been the reality for the last three years. No, it's one or the other. No. So as you and because we had to start everything within six months, everything's moving through at the same stage. So as you said, builders are getting to trying to get everything, but then they get to plate height and they get stuck because we don't have enough roof carpenters. Get through all their roof carpenters, but then you've got to wait for a roof plumbers to become available before you can get your next progress payment. So I do think that and I'm going to quote building and energy that. The, the average is about 22 registered builders that go broke every year. Mm. We're 27 in the last financial year. But I would say because of the national news cycle, we tend to hear it every day. Mm. And there's probably been a couple of ones that you know have had their challenges that seem to be in the news in a regular cycle that, that kind of remind us every day what's going on. Well, especially the ones we see in the news are the ones that are probably more nefarious with their actions as well. And every industry has those bad eggs. I think it's prudent to now look forward if we can about solutions to this problem. The construction market is obviously the biggest medium 
for solving this problem because that's how we're going to have more supply is, is more construction. We've spoken about, obviously, immigration helping the throughput of labor and supply. I think everyone needs to take a week off and go to Bali just to refresh and then come back. That would probably help too, speaking to the traders on the ground every day. But one of the big decisions that Minister Kerry made a couple of weeks ago was to shelve the medium density code. Now, you were speaking last week with the ABC on a panel. They're talking about housing supply. I was listening along to it. It seemed like there was quite an ideological bend to the audience, to be honest. But with regards to the medium density code, what was HIA's position? Because I personally didn't hear a lot about what the advocacy was from your end to Minister Kerry. I think we've been part of the discussion ever since this started in 2019. And I think as far as engagement goes, the department did a pretty good job at engaging lots of people and, and going through this process. At the start of that, I, I think we advocated really heavily that R30 and R40 shouldn't be part of the medium density code. I think that type of product has changed a lot over the last 25, 30 years, and a lot of our new developments are R30 and R40, and it's a much different Just single residential houses. Yeah, yeah. it's much different to, to kind of what we've seen in the Hammy Hills and the Balgas and and those kinds of things of, of previous days. So a one-size-fits-all code to all the different types of topologies we had across WA was going to be a really tough thing to implement. And I think the department obviously made their decision in March this year, we obviously carried on that discussion with a, a few of the other peak bodies and a, a few of the builders in town. Continually knock on the door saying, guys, are you doing the numbers? Yeah. And I think the large piece was that the landscape has changed significantly from 2019 to now. And we can't be restricting the supply of affordable product to market. Simply because ideology will have it that it's a better design. I think there were some great aspects to the medium density code. There definitely but, were. Um, yeah. But I, I think we needed to find a way to include it not just say this is the only way that we can build it is you've got a piece of land if you can make it work with great yield then absolutely go for it but if you want to build a single house with four bedrooms on it and because that's what you need for you your can do that too family you can do that too and that's where i think it fell down the medium density code after reflecting on this for two three weeks now since it's been repealed i think the big issue with the medium density code and why it was repealed is that it was a ideological code that came in to the exclusion of all other design options and it placed itself as the superior design option and therefore should be the only option going forward to the exclusion of all other ideology, all other price point, all other socio-demographic positions. And whether you're in a housing supply crisis or not, this just exacerbates the point that it very much was created to force the whole industry towards this idea about how good design sits and how it interfaces with the environment as well. And whilst most people don't have much of an issue with that concept, practically on the ground when you are excluding a massive portion socio-demographically who could never afford that product in the first place in the suburbs where it would work, that's where it, I think really the straw broke the camel's back with the minister in really recognizing the numbers there that when you're going out to Nolamara and you're forced to do a townhouse that costs $850,000 on the market that no one will be able to afford, no one is going to build it. And I think it clicked with him at some point in the couple of weeks before he made that decision that this isn't just about the ideology, it's about the reality of the world here. So I think Going forward, the the message that you can and you can speak to this, given you were on that panel, 
that's coming from the proponents of the medium density code is, well, now that we can't have it, can we at least have it as an option? And I think how that's how it should have always been in the first place. It should have been a broadening of the existing code to allow for the ancillary dwellings, to allow for the small build sizes and lot sizes, to allow for the zero lot boundaries at two-story levels so that you can broaden a spectrum of housing not to the exclusion of what's already being done. Does that not make sense? I think so. And I think that has been, I guess, the discussion going forward since since the announcement a couple of weeks ago. So I think there are some fantastic designs and speaking to some of the architects that have been involved, you know, there's some great product they're producing and we need increased density. All supply is good supply. Absolutely, right? yeah. yeah. You know, there's some arguments over some triplexes and other bits and pieces, but I think we need density, we need planning, we need the ability to have greenfields development. We should be looking for ways to be inclusive of those rather than restricting the supply. And this is where I want to make sure that my views here are qualified in that I'm very much an infill person. I think I've said this many times over 247 episodes that I'm not a big fan of urban expansion whatsoever. It's all about infill, right? But if we're going to try and push this market towards its 47% target of infill, it can't just be one solution. There has to be a broad solution for all price points. Otherwise, the market will simply just keep turning to urban expansion every time we can't meet the numbers. And the market is the market, uh, I guess. That's right. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. We need to create and find those ways to have urban infill and hopefully... Now that the minister's kind of pressed pause on it, that he can pull a group together to kind of say, okay, where to next? And how do we include the real great benefits of the medium density code that incentivize yield in some of those things that people were talking about? But how do we take away some of the punitive aspects of it? That's a fantastic way to put it. If we removed the punitive aspects of site coverage and setbacks, I don't think many people would have had an issue with it, to be honest. Let's get back to that conversation you had with the ABC, Minister Kerry was on. One thing that I noted quite interestingly that he brought up a couple of times there was he has this idea, this goal that we can start moving, and I'm all for it, but I don't see how it happens. We can start moving towards all these six-story apartment buildings. Did that raise your eyebrows a little bit in, one, his ambition, which again, I'm all for, but that where I feel like both culturally and from a planning framework perspective and from a feasibility perspective, we're a long way from anyone accepting that or even being able to get that off the ground in broad-based scale. It's probably one of the first times I've heard him talk in, in that much detail about the space. What I would say that was encouraging was that he was talking about Development WA doing some of the heavy lifting to get some of that up and running. Because he recognises it doesn't work financially. And I think we've lost a lot of that expertise here in Perth over the course of the last two or three years. Definitely. You look, you look at the, the Pindans and the Jacksons and the others that... In, uh, operated in that space who who aren't here anymore. We're not seeing anyone from the East Coast come over and look to get into that kind of development, but I think it's really important. I think I spoke about on the, on the panel, I like what's happened in Subi, and I like if we can create some hubs around Perth, whether you can do that around the Metronet sites or not. But I think that is a 10, 15, 20 year plan to it get has to Perth be. into that space. I don't, I don't think it's something that's going to move the dial right now, because as you said, I think we've got two apartments that have started construction this year, which is 143 apartments. Yeah, it's a splash the in the a- ocean. Average sale price for an apartment is a million dollars because that's all that stacks up at the moment. So, and that's a great point you make is is really starting to ram home this reality that whilst a lot of us want infill to happen, whilst apartments are the future for our city, if we're going to stop urban expansion being so prevalent as the solution, it has to be apartments. It's great to hear John Kerry saying it has to be apartments. Nothing east of the freeway stacks up remotely, does it? 
Not at the moment, no. And it comes back down to workforce capacity like we talked about. It comes back to how do we make it easier for people to move? I know stamp duty gets rolled out there all the time, but how many people do we have rolling around in really big houses that could be better utilised that kind of don't want to pay a significant amount of money to, to kind of move? So It's a cultural thing, I think. In, uh, in Perth, people still see it as a compromise, as though you live in an apartment. Hmm. Yeah. Whereas in Melbourne, Sydney, it's like, oh, it's nice. Yeah. What? Show us the views you've got. You know, oh, fantastic. But you've got to have stuff around those apartments as well, right? If you're going to want to create atmosphere, you want to create a. Yeah. Um, you need a activity centres, yeah. all those things. And yeah. I think when you when you go to Brisbane, for example, I brought this up uh, maybe 15 episodes ago. <laughs> they're one city council, the Brisbane City Council. They they're essentially the size of all of our local governments all put together. And because of that, all the politics has gone in terms of the nimbyism in that space and they are utilizing their best asset which is their river and instead of having 2000 square meter homes on the river through dalkeith apple cross Adderdale, these are all 10 12 story apartment buildings where thousands of people can enjoy the views of the river and that for me would be the incentive that a place like perth would need to go well you might not be able to afford the 14 million dollar mansion but you can afford a two million dollar three by three on floor seven that has the same views but that has to come from fundamental changes at a local government level to rezone these r10 mansion blocks into blocks that can be amalgamated to then have fantastic coffee strips and walkways and wharfs all along the river that we can all enjoy together. And I guess at the end of the day, that comes down to planning. Mm. So how do we understand where we're at at the moment, but culturally, generationally take people, I hate the word, on a journey to kind of say, okay, well, this is where we want to aspire to be in the next 25 years because I think Perth has missed the trick by not taking advantage of whether it's coastline or, or the river. What a river. Um, to make it a... You and know, what a coastline. A yeah, I have a eight knots down in East Frio. It's got a really good space to go have a beer and, and kind of sit and watch the boats go by, um, which really should be encouraging a, a little bit more of that. Let's talk about the NCC because we're going to get technical for a minute and yep. most people don't have the ability, I certainly don't have the in-depth understanding myself about exactly everything that this is going to do to our industry. But I thought let's have a bit of a taster today. A lot of people, especially on the green side, to be frank, you know, rolling their eyes, saying, oh, we should have had NCC in by now. We need to save the environment, whatnot. And look, again, we have aspirations to make our homes more sensitive to climate change and the issues we're going to have in the future. But there's a practical reality of what we're doing too. People ask, why haven't we brought in NCC 2022 when it's 2023? Why is Western Australia the way to wild state that's behind the game again? Can you give us a very real frank update as to where the other states are with it and what it actually means for Western Australia, both from a built form, material space, but also cost? The discussion around this you know, had been going on a, a long time. The decision-making was probably around May, June last year. That was at a time where we had just come out the back of COVID. We obviously had some, most of the challenges that we were having at the moment, and there wasn't a huge light at the end of the tunnel for most of the builders. So uh, to the state government's credit, and Minister Cook at the time as the building minister, he was really receptive to industry's feedback that while we know some of these changes need to happen and we all want to be on the same page as the National Construction Code that 
right now we weren't in a position to allocate the time, resources and even funding from within some of these building companies to consider what it would mean for the types of buildings that we would need, the land development activity that would be required to ensure blocks were orientated in the right way that we could maximise. It's not just building, it's also land development. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you know some of the, the land developers are, are working through that now as to kind of how how do they maximise blocks so that, that we can build houses on them and they can maximize north facing sun and and those kinds of things so there was a whole process that we needed to go through and it might be cheeky but coffee cups had about three years to transition from plastic to kind of recyclables and and we were trying to force through a significant building change in the period of 12 months we're lucky in wa from a building perspective that we have a 12-month transition period legislated so whatever changes are made within the ncc that we do get that additional 12 months so uh, minister cook and the Premier came out and said that we'll introduce this in May 2024, but due to the 12-month transition, it'll be May 25. Other states went ahead and went early. Victoria, we know, went early this year. They've since pushed it back a further 12 months. Queens, Why? Because their industry is in a very similar place to where we are. And once they unpicked everything that was involved within the NCC, understood that it really was the biggest change in building in the last 20 years and and that industry needs time to get to that space. And there's probably an affordability angle to it as well and understanding that, you know, there is some additional cost. Well, we started this conversation talking about my first home. Absolutely, yeah. And that now is when the nation needs a critical supply of housing that if we can delay some of that cost coming in then we should be doing that at this point in time so what are the headlines what are the the top things that would have changed for mum and dad west australians in terms of what they could do with their construction preferences probably the biggest change is going from six star to seven star from a housing perspective and what does that mean it means that you're going to need to look at the way that your house is orientated you're going to look at where your windows are orientated and how big they are. There's lots of talk about double glazing, but whether or not that's needed, I don't think that's needed on every house, but that again... Maybe on some windows. Some windows, if you get a block that's not orientated in the particularly right way, then it may be something that you need to consider. And there's a considerable cost to go from a, an E-type glass right through to a double glazing. So, you know, they're the things that we needed time to consider to get through. There's insulation within our cavity brickwork and brick veneer-type construction methods that needs to be vapour permeable from a condensation point of view. that product doesn't exist so we need to work with our insulation manufacturers to be able to get to a point where we can supply that product to market there's still some work that we need to do around the framing product it's going to be hard for some of that that product to be able to reach seven stars so we need to work with that on on how we do that i've heard many rumors that when this comes in especially the seven star rating that it makes it very hard for most double brick homes to meet that in that the double brick home is essentially a kiln in many ways and without serious treatment or dropping it down to a a brick veneer or reverse brick veneer or going to framed homes it becomes very hard for that product to actually meet it is that misguided i think that's misguided yeah from our experience it's probably easier for to make it to get to seven star with double brick than it is for a purely timber framed house so win for western australia (laughs) i don't know if we'll get to this but I, i think we'll probably see in the next 10 or 15 years a a transition 
Uh, we're already starting to see that. I think the pandemic kind of brought about new methods of construction. We're probably more in the brick veneer space. And I think we'll see more of that as we kind of head towards more efficient, different ways of building. I'd like to be optimistic about that too, because I've recognised for many years that it is very strange a second you head south of Mander, it's totally fine having a steel frame or timber house with cladding that looked sexy in Margaret River. But the second you're in the metro area, it's deemed low quality. You go north again up Carrath or everything's still framed because it has to be for cyclone ratings, but you get to Perth and it's low quality. It's very strange that customer preference, but I think the only reason that we've seen it come on recently is simply because the cost of bricks and brick laying was so expensive that these alternative methodologies will cost comparable. The second that the brick cost comes down again, I don't see timber and steel dropping the same way. We don't have the same amount of trades as well to install this stuff. We've still got the bricky cohort there and they're already starting to look for work again prices have dropped surely the customer goes "Mm, an extra 30 grand to go timber i think i'll stick to what i'm used to double brick thanks is that not what's going to happen mike i'd like to think that we've had a shift i agree i think we've seen in the past when it fluctuates that ultimately comes down to consumer preference and choice and if you go around to many of the display homes around there at the moment, there's still people knocking on the walls to kind of see what it's made out of. I think people are more open to framed construction and I think as they grow in market share, then some of the challenges around cost also change. I think we'll see a greater prevalence of it in the market in the next 10 to 15 years. Mm, I think we're all optimistic about that, but my pessimistic side thinks it will still be well below 10% or whatever the number is simply because... To be frank, most consumers, I think, especially at the first home buyer end, aren't really that savvy in that space and they'll be offered whatever's the cheapest option. And most of the project builders will offer the cheapest option, which at scale is probably still going to be double brick with brick layers and a bit of render on the outside and maybe some cladding if there's some money there for it. I don't know any project builders other than maybe Summit who are going around preferencing alternative building methods to double brick and even then it's probably still an alternative for summit well let's have a beer in 10 years and we can we will uh, see what happens <laughs> it will be interesting to, to look back on episode 2000 what, what that conversation looks like like i mean the last part of the puzzle here going forward long term we've referenced this in immigration but clearly is a dwindling base of apprentices in the building industry. Stats have shown that the largest drop-off rates across all apprentices in Western Australia is the building industry. Why, firstly, and then secondly, what are we doing, what can we do, what should be done more to start building this trade base up again, obviously, so that we don't end up in that position where we're in 2017, 2018, 2019, no work to give to apprentices and then stuffed a year later. Through that COVID time, a lot of the investment went to projects where skilled labour was required. So I think for people listening to the podcast who have children who are coming up through the system, I think it's really heartening to know that that when the state gets in trouble or the state looks to grow, that it looks to its skilled workforce to be able to help to make that happen. Um, the protected breed. They are a little bit, yeah. You know, the federal government was subsidising 50% of a, a salary of a, an apprentice through 2020 and 2021. So we have seen them drop off significantly pre-COVID. We have seen a huge amount of commencements during the last two years. I think there's been about 10,000 CTF reports, 10,000 per year for the last 10 years. But as you say, they, they do have a, about a 55% drop-off rate. One of the things I'm really proud of, despite that drop-off rate, is that 
everyone gets the opportunity to come and try. You don't have to do a university degree to come and see if you want to work in our industry. There are going to be people that, that try it and it's not for them. It can be hot. It can be hard. It can not really be what for them. It's what, tough work. It's tough work, yeah. Being on a roof all day or in a roof all day or laying bricks all day, let's cut the crap. And Being a tradie in the housing industry is not for the faint-hearted. It, it isn't. And there's so many other career choices out there at the moment. I think it's something that over the next couple of years, we'll see a lot of those apprentices that have started in the last two years come out and become skilled and qualified tradesmen. And they will help us get to that point of building 20,000 homes. But we need to get back to valuing those trades and, and valuing... Well, is, the, is the industry not valuing them already? I mean, most of them have had if not 50%, 100% pay rises in the last three years, is that not enough of an incentive for a lot of these young people going, which job will I do next year? I think it starts earlier than that. I think it starts, you know, for people who, you know, I'm 42, I've got two young kids. It's it's about telling them that they can go and do whatever they want to do. They can encourage if they are creative to go out and try and, and be a tradesperson. And, you know, I was with someone who'd been in the industry for 30 years and, he still drives around pointing out all the houses that he's built mm. um, and all the limestone foundations that he's rolled out in Gosnells and Thornley. And it's something that you can be really proud of. So it's, it's something that I, I think I'm really passionate about and, and we've got a fantastic CTF at the moment that is helping spread the word, but they are really valued members of our community and we need to c- continue to find ways to make it attractive to come and work in the industry. So I'm a young person or I have a young son or daughter who might be looking into the industry. What's my first port of call? Is there a website? Is there a company? Where am I going if I want to give a trade a crack tomorrow? I would go to the CTF website and they have some fantastic online material there that you can kind of scroll through to, to kind of see what the different options that, that are out there. You can reach out to any of the job network providers. You can reach out to HIA. We've got a number of members who are looking for people who are keen to be an apprentice at the moment and, and get working. So I think reaching out to the industry associations, re- reaching out to GTOs, go and drive around a building site. There's probably a tradie somewhere that's looking <laughs> that's for true, someone. Yeah. I think you can go past every corner in uh, in most of the land estates at the moment and they'll give you a shovel, that's for sure. Absolutely. And that's the point. Go out and try it. may not necessarily be for you, but you'll understand what home building means to people and then maybe you'll find your right opportunity as a result of that. Michael McGowan, Executive Director of the HIA. It's been a fantastic 45-minute chat, mate. Really appreciate some of the real honesty you provided today, your story as well, and look forward to chatting with you in the future about hopefully some of the progress we've made in biting into that supply deficit. No worries. Thanks, Trent. Loved being here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!